Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and it's great to have your company. Can I just begin by saying thank you to you all for your lovely messages? I've been just so touched by everyone's kindness and support, uh, wishing me all the very best and saying how pleased they are and how excited that my voice is back, and nobody's more pleased and excited than me. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. This is a weekly podcast about El Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. And the Camino is a pilgrimage walked by pilgrims. The most famous and popular Camino is what's called the Camino Francaise. It winds its way from St. jean Pied de Port to Santiago de Compostela. Santiago is so named, Spanish for St. James, because James, one of Christ's twelve apostles, is interred beneath the massive cathedral in the heart of the city that bears his name. Pilgrims attend Mass and then line up to go beneath the altar to view the silver casket housing James's bones. Santiago is a magical place. Pilgrims from all over the world have completed their Camino and are full of joy, full of excitement, in many cases a little sad because their amazing adventure is over. But ask any pilgrim and they'll tell you it's not really the end of their adventure, it's the beginning of their adventure. They'll talk about wanting to take their Camino home with them, wanting to take the peace of mind home with them, their silent step-by-step meditation home with them. Of course, the moment you arrive at the airport in your hometown, maybe you're lucky enough to have someone waiting for you, or you jump in a taxi, you know your home awaits. And thus begins the challenge of taking what you learned on the Camino in your life's backpack onward over hills and down dales of daily life. One of the great joys of the Camino is wandering into town mid to late afternoon to find a flock of pilgrims gathered in the garden of a local bar or restaurant. One of my favourites is in Saria, just as you head up the hill toward the Magdalena Monasterio on Rua Mayor. And I met some British pilgrims there last September. I was having lunch, so were they. They were enjoying a cold beer. And I wandered past later that evening, and they were still there, having dinner. And the Camino is like that. No one judges you. You're on your own Camino, your own pilgrimage. The American Christian theological ethicist H. Richard Niebuhr said, Pilgrims are persons in motion, passing through territories not their own, seeking something we might call completion, or perhaps the word clarity will do as well, a goal to which only the Spirit's compass points the way. Well, I was recently introduced to the work of Lee Page, an American writer. Why don't I simply read to you Lee's bio? Lee Page is a writer, walker, gardener, motivational listener, professional dog spoiler, and occasional exaggerator. She lives in rural Montana with her husband and a small circus of semi-domesticated animals. Lee's on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I don't know where to start. Professional dog spoiler or occasional exaggerator. But let's go. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let's go with motivational listener. What's a motivational listener? <laughs> well, you know how there's motivational speakers. Yeah. They're out there, you know, and they're and I'm, I don't mean to, you know, put down motivational speakers. But what I have learned in my 60 years of life so far is that people more than they need help and more than they hold you know what the right way is or even a way is they need to be heard um i think people have stories and wisdom that they don't recognize as worthy and i think when we listen to people amazing things happen and so that's what i mean (laughs) i mean i'm thinking i'm making a joke but i'm actually in all in in all seriousness I think there's a lot of talking in our world, and I think we could use a whole lot more listening. Yeah, that's great. Man, I really love that. I do a lot of training for people on the radio, and the first thing that if, if somebody's just about to start a job in radio, I say the, the number one thing you need to do is listen. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. Because that's where you how you learn. You learn by listening. That's so yeah. great. Well, well, the other thing, I can't let a, occasional exaggerator go without a, asking about that as well. Come on. What's an occasional oh exaggerator? Well, <laughs> I just, I'm <laughs> one of those people that takes in information and the details kind of go in one ear and out the other. 
and leave me with the gist or the feeling. And so if I'm then recounting something based on that, my grasp of the actual details or numbers may be somewhat flimsy. Um, <laughs> and I just go whole hog. You know, my husband is ex the exact opposite. He remembers every detail. And so either we're a terrible pair or a wonderful pair, you know, yeah. Jack Spratt and all that. But yeah, you can't see me because this is just audio, but I only have Spanish ancestry. I don't have Italian ancestry, but I can't speak without using my hands. Like it's an aerobic event for me to talk, you know, because <laughs> everything's going crazy. And I think I just, it's all for emphasis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I love that. I love that. No, I have a very dear friend who, and he is one of the world's best exaggerators. And every movie he's seen is the best movie he's ever seen. Every song he's heard is the best song he's ever heard. And 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 <laughs> sometimes when he says it, we all just roll around laughing because it's like right. you, last year you said you know, and it's just it never it never fails to appeal to me. Talking about appealing to me, your writing appeals to me. Tell us about the book Between the Path and the Way, a 1,000-mile journal. Well, that was not something I you know, intended basically for public consumption. I mean, in the big picture, it's a book about paying attention, but I didn't know that when I started it. As you so brilliantly said in your introduction, you know, we go on these walks and we have no idea what's going to happen. And that's, to me, the beauty of it. Um, and so last year, I walked the Via Francigena. Actually, I didn't walk the entire thing, but I walked 1,000 miles of it. There's about 1,200. And I kept a diary, which sounds kind of, you know, run-of-the-mill. A lot of people keep diaries, although I didn't when I walked the Camino Frances, and I regretted it. But I'm not a diary keeper, which is weird because I'm a writer, but I don't keep diaries except when I'm traveling. And the last diary I kept was when I was 16 and I was on another kind of wild and crazy trip and I went back and looked at it and all I wrote about was the food and the boys which makes sense you know I was 16 but I wanted I wanted more details I wanted to know more about where we were and it just wasn't there so I decided to do things differently and I just have become I don't know if it's because of the pandemic or Twitter, which I'm not on, or what, but I've been interested in writing that is, I use the word compression, um, mm. but what I just mean is saying more by saying less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I was sort of thinking about this diary, I stumbled across a quote from the poet Charles Simic, and it said, be brief and tell us everything. And you ever have that feeling that like, something is speaking to you because that's what I felt like. You know, I, I don't remember where I read it, but it literally like jumped off the page and like slapped me in a good way. And I just thought, Oh wow, this is what I need to do. But I still had no idea what I was doing, but I just decided I was going to limit myself to one page per day. And what ended up happening with that was it changed the way I experienced my walk because I was out looking for details, you know, rather than writing all paragraphs and sentences about whatever, because I could only use a page, I had to condense it into little lists and little tiny little stories. And it just changed my entire focus. And I felt like I, every day I was on a treasure hunt looking for these details to include and it, it actually, I know it sounds like an exaggeration, but it literally changed my life, wow. this change of focus. And so the, the, the book is, a, I mean, it's in a way, it's just like a lot of lists and, you know, funny little stories. But over the course of it, there's actually this whole transformation that I went through. And I don't really tell you about it, but you see it. Because to me, I feel like the, the – I don't like to tell people – again, the motivational listening. I don't like to tell people, well, you can do this. But here's an example of what somebody did. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a better teacher than you know me sort of blabbing and pontificating. But there is a little bit at the end too about – you know I call it for the dreamers, you know the people who want but aren't sure. 
And so there's a little bit in there. It was a fun thing to do, and I wanted it to be a fun project. And I actually decided to make it a fundraiser as well, because the whole time I was walking, and this was true on the Camino Frances too, that I did first, the, I was so blown away by the kindness and generosity of strangers. Um, it kind of renewed my faith in the human race, to be honest. You know, doing these walks, it's like when my heart feels like squeezed out of just everything, I go on one of these walks and I feel like I come back full to bursting. And I was, I was so amazed at how welcome I felt as I was walking along, and particularly on the Via Francigena because it's not a well-traveled path. Particularly in France, a lot of people have no idea what you're doing. They don't even know the path exists. Yeah. And so you're just wandering out there, you know, just this person with very little French and a lot of hand gestures. And people were so incredibly kind. And I just thought it I just thought this is an amazing thing. And then I don't know, because of I don't know, but I kept thinking about refugees. And I know that's a totally different situation. You know, I'm walking through and I've you know, dropping a little bit of cash everywhere I go and refugees are coming with their huge need and it's a completely different deal. But what I was thinking about was them and how challenging it was for me to be in a different country, having to speak a different language, make my needs known, try to, you know, just find my way, read the maps, read the street signs. And I thought about people that are under so much trauma and they come to places and they're they're there for real. And I just thought... I was thinking about the gap, you know, between that and the challenge it presents for everybody, for the refugees and for the, you know, the host countries. And so I decided to make this little project a little fundraiser, which does, it just means that any, any money I make off of it, I'm going to donate to the high commissioner for refugees at the, at the United Nations, just because I know they do good work. So that was my way of trying to fill in that little gap, just a little tiny bit. Yeah. Wow. Uh, because I was very aware of, of, you know, how lucky I was. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing. I was reading about the book, not reading the book, but it's a journal, actually. And it's about how far moments of beauty and kindness can carry a person. A story not of seeking, but of paying attention. That's a great philosophy. I, I guess a, an exaggerator and a motivational listener. A story not of <laughs> seeking, but of paying attention. Were you well, uh, were you aware while you were walking the Camino that you were doing the, that, uh, seeking and, and paying attention? Well, you know, I, I think one of the, one, to me, one of the best things about doing a Camino is, is how, well, let me back up a little bit, if, if I may. Of course. To the Camino Frances, which was the first one I did. It was four or five years ago. I can't keep track of time anymore. But I had just finished a manuscript and I was feeling really wrung out and I didn't know how to recharge. And so it came into my head that I needed to do a long walk because I am a walker. I walk every day. I live near mountains. I'm, I'm always walking, but it just wasn't quite doing it for me. And a friend of mine said, you need to go on the Camino. And so I actually made a point of not reading a lot like I didn't see the movie I didn't read a whole lot about it I just you know I got a guidebook um, the Briarly guidebook and I was like this is going to be enough for me and I just kind of jumped in and did it and I had no idea what to expect in that sense I had no expectations which I realize is different I didn't realize this until afterwards if that's different than having low expectations I think low expectations are things that we it's what we do for ourselves when we're afraid of being disappointed. You know, we set really low expectations. I don't think that's a like a great necessarily approach to things. Mm. But having no expectations is very different because it just means you're curious, you're open, you know, whatever comes. And you don't know what's important. And because you don't know what's important in advance, you're not filtering out things that don't fit with what you think is going to be your purpose or your story or, you know, your goal. My goal was just to walk from beginning to end. And I felt so freed by that. I kind of, while I was on the walk, didn't really get that 
because I was so in the moment while I was walking. You know, I didn't really have time to reflect because everything was new. And there were people and just the whole, it was just like absorption, 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 absorption. Yeah. And there really wasn't time to digest it until I got home. And then it really, I feel like it took me a couple of years to figure out, you know, what was so amazing to me. But I think it was that just not knowing what to expect and being a hundred percent open. So the little tiny things, and this is what I captured in this journal, little tiny things have a huge impact when you don't consider them little tiny things. They all make it onto the board of, you know, this is my day. Um, and so I kind of had that sense for when I did the VIA as well. And I had to, you know, it, was, it had to be a little, make a little more effort to not have expectations because of course I knew a little bit yeah. about it yeah. you know, before I started. But I will tell you, I, it, I failed my first try on the Via Francigena. I failed because I was four days in, it was during COVID. It was still sort of in lockdown and there were some professional things going on in my life that were kind of upsetting and I didn't go with the right frame of mind. And after four days, I bailed. I actually, to be honest, I, this is not exaggeration. I called up my husband, you know, in tears. I was like, I have to come home. And I had to go home. I left in Arras, in Arras, France. You know, I felt like a failure for a little while. But now I realize, you know, because it takes me a long time to process these things. I realized that I learned as much from that failure as I did from the rest of the trip, which I did eventually go back and pick up in Arras. And then I, you know, walked all the way down. You know, so even knowing what I supposedly knew, yeah, it just I wasn't in the right frame of mind. But then when I went back, I was, and I yeah. just and every day, even a day that's cruddy, is still amazing. Yeah, I remember one day that was just it was the perfect storm of all the terrible things that can just happen to you. You know, your feet, your digestion. You know, it was too long. You know, just everything was wrong. I was in a terrible mood. I hadn't slept. But then I remember seeing, I was walking along a river near, I think this was in Italy, near Pavia, and there was a river, and then there was like a little side part to the river that kind of cut off and then went back, and there were ducks that were literally surfing this little side thing. And then they would go zooming down, and then they come back up, and they go zooming <laughs> down again. And I'm telling you, those ducks saved my life. They made that day. Yeah. You know, because that was a just put one foot in front of the other and get there kind of day. Yeah. But then there were those ducks, and... I will remember those ducks forever because yeah. they made, they came when I needed them most. And, you know, just ducks. There's no such thing as just ducks. <laughs> I love ducks. I don't know why. I love ducks. It's so funny. You know, isn't I it? think they're, they're like comedians, them and chickens. Yeah, they're like yeah. comedians, you know, yeah. the bird world or something. Yeah. 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 Um, I say yeah. on the Camino, when I walk the Camino and I see a chicken, I say, Good morning, Mrs. Chicken. Buenos dias. Mrs. Chicken. Yeah. I always say every time yeah. I, people stop and say, why are you talking to chickens? But I do. I just love them so much. There's, yeah. a, there's another book you've written about parenting that I want to get to in a minute. But it was an article that you wrote for The Guardian that piqued my interest and, and prompted me to reach out to you. The title is, I walked a thousand miles alone through Europe and learned that fear is the price of freedom. And you begin that piece by saying, I take risks on solo hikes, navigating animal traps and dangerous terrain. But for a woman, men are the biggest threat. I do it to be more open to the world in the hope it will be more open to me. Tell us about the fear on the Via Francigena. Well, um, so it's, you know, it's so hard to, to say it all in one article. And I also have to say that The Guardian came up with the title and the subtitle, which I felt was being an exaggerator myself, I felt was maybe a little overdramatic, mm -hmm. uh, but I understood what they were saying. But to me, well, there's two things going on in the world. One, I mean, for me on one of these hikes, one is any most women, I don't want to say all women, but most women, certainly all women that I know, I know, have to be careful out in the world. Any, you know, we just have to be careful. The world, we walk through the world a little differently than men, you know, because violence against women is just a fact. It's just a fact of the world. Mm. And one of the things I know, however, is that 
statistically, women are safer out like doing these hikes than they are at home. So I know in my head that like if I go on a hike in the mountains here or if I walk the Via Francigena or the 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 Frances or you know any of the other Camino routes, I am statistically much safer there than I am in my own hometown. And I always actually, and this is just a side thing, but I always joke to people and they say, what's your number one safety tip? And I always say, look out for traffic. You know, it's the cars that are going to get you. You know, that's what it is. Yeah. But we still, I think every woman carries some fear, some level of fear of being out alone and what if, you know, what happens when. And so what I was trying to do in that article was acknowledge the fact that that fear is very common for women and it's and it's real you know it's not illogical it's not irrational like my claustrophobia and my fear of being in gorges that i was talking about in there is that's totally irrational i know that but i still have it you know there's nothing i can do about it i just have to use my little ways of getting through it but the fear of men is not actually irrational even though in those places you know like on these walks you're actually relatively safe so you're trying to balance what's actually true or, you know, logical with a, a feeling that's pretty intense. And for me, I'm actually not all that afraid of men when I'm walking. Although every time I come up, you know, a man is like coming along, I have to go through my little gut check. You know, does this feel okay? What's my vibe? You know, can I, you know, say hello or is it better to keep my eyes forward and just have a big stride, you know, and cruise on through? And I have to make that a, that assessment and that adjustment every time. And that's just the reality of being a woman. What I was really trying to do with this article was talk to women and say, because I know a lot of people, are, women are afraid to travel solo and they want to do these things and they want to do them solo, but they're afraid and really what I was trying to say to them is, I get it. I get why you're afraid. I feel the same way, but you can still go. You can do this. And, you know, I mean, I can't guarantee anybody's safety. I mean, for any, you know, but I think it's a good, I think it's a safe thing to do as a solo woman. I think these are safe. As long as you use your common sense, I think they're safe. But I also want to recognize that the fear is real and the fear is legitimate. And I also was speaking to men at the same time, because I think it's really hard for men to understand what it's like to be a woman and what it's like to be a solo woman there. Like a guy walking along a trail who knows he's not a jerk and who knows he respects women may be like, well, I'm not a threat, but she doesn't know that. Yeah. You know? And so like, and I don't know that I have to go through my whole assessment and gut check to get that feel because if I am wrong, it could be really bad, yeah. you know? And yeah. so I was speaking to men not to like hammer them, you know, like you guys are the bad guys, but just to elevate the awareness a little bit that this is what it's like to be a woman. Yeah. You know, this is a consideration we have to take every time we walk into a, you know, a dark parking lot or a parking garage or you know, anywhere. We always have to pay attention. We can't put in our earbuds because we have to be listening. And so that's what I was trying to communicate with that. But really, I do think it's safe. And, you know, that's why I was trying to talk about all my other fears as well. Yeah. You know, because those are particular to me. You know, they're my little nutty things. I mean, I'm actually more afraid of dogs than I am of men on these walks, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not something that would, you know, neither of those things are things that would keep me from going. And sure. so that's why I was, you know, it's a risk I think is worth taking. It's yeah. experience is so incredible you know, that I'm, I'm willing, yeah. I'm willing to take the risk. And that's the message I got from, from the article, because you write, when I walk alone, the consequences of every good or bad choice I make fall entirely on me, a responsibility and a freedom as a woman and a mother. I rarely only have to consider what I want and need without having to first attend to other people. I know there are risks, but each time I come out of that forest, in inverted commas, I feel stronger and more confident, weighed against the simple daily rhythms of a long-distant walk and the joy and wonder I experience. Risk, reasonable risk, becomes a small part of the equation and one I am willing to accept. Uh, you, you touched on men and the, the role that they play in that. What can men do to be less threateningly? What can I do to make sure I'm not making women feel unsafe? Is that a question you can even answer? I don't know. You know, 
I thought about this and I was, and I was like, how am I going to answer that question? Because it's such a challenging question and I'm not sure I have a really good answer um, yeah, because I yeah. think for each individual woman, it's, it's different. But my guess is what I would say is to pay attention and, and sort of read the room, you know, like, if she is looking down, don't like start a big conversation, you know, don't be pushy. You know, I think it's, it's probably the best thing to do is get a, you know, just get a feel like don't stare at her. Um, That's kind of intimidating. The fact that like most people that are pilgrims that are on the trail, you know, they have a backpack. A lot of them have poles and I find that reassuring. Um, I mean, I remember one time, I think it was coming out of Burgos or something. It was I was leaving very early in the morning and it was pitch dark. And I attached myself to this guy, this group of like three or four German guys. I didn't say anything. I just walked like behind them because I felt like I actually felt safer with them. Yeah. Although they were flying and man, I was, you know, it was hard <laughs> for me to keep up. But um, if I can go a little farther, what I think ultimately needs to happen for women to feel safe on the trail is that they need to feel more respected in the world. Mm. And so I think what men can do is talk to each other about being more respectful of women, respecting women as, you know, having their own fully formed integrity, you know, intellectual, emotional, bodily integrity, and then they need to be respected. Because I think when that happens, women will no longer be afraid, be afraid of meeting an individual man anywhere. Um, but I pr- think likely until that happens, there will always, you know, we'll always have to be that, have that gut check. But, you know, if you have a wide trail, give her some birth, you know, yeah. you know, just be respectful and be yourself, you know, be yourself, but don't, you don't, you know, just pay attention, pay attention yeah. to her cues, her signals. I think kindness is a good place to start. I Always. Think if you conduct yourself with kindness and you have kindness in the bottom of your heart and, and your motivation, then people will start to feel safer around you because they get a sense of that kindness. And I think that's a pretty good place to start. Uh, uh, I agree. Yeah, you know, yeah. And I think that's what happens when I do my gut check is I am... I am feeling that I am feeling that intention and then that purpose. And then I'm like, I can relax, you know, my shoulders go down I breathe fine. And, you know, I'll even say hi, you know, or, or even have a conversation with somebody. I, I think that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Kindness is a good place to start. You've, I mentioned your other book, um, parenting in the here and now realizing the strengths you already have. The PR says being a good parent doesn't mean being perfect learning complex theories or finding another 12 hours in the day, rather than striving for and failing to reach a frustrating ideal, parents can start from where they are right now and enjoy a more harmonious family life almost immediately. How, Lee Page, how how can we enjoy a more harmonious family life almost immediately? What do I have to do? Oh, well, um... (laughs) You know, it's funny because they actually, I mean, I I feel like walking a Camino and being a parent are very similar in a lot of different ways. And I actually hadn't thought about this until this very moment when you were reading that. It has to do with acceptance and that that sense of curiosity and being open and, and acceptance of where you are right now. Because a lot of the struggles that we get into with our children are because we're expecting them to be somewhere and they're not there yet and we're very conscious of that gap of where where we from you know between where we are and where we want to be and it's really hard to meet our children in a way that's helpful to them and us if we're focused on that gap Mm. and i just think we are bombarded with these a sense you know that we get from everywhere you know from media from friends you know from neighbors you know, who look like they've got all their stuff together and nobody does, nobody does. And, and we're all just trying to do the best we can. And I actually, there are as, as much as I hate to like, well, actually my kids are like, mom, you love bossing us around, which is true. But you know, I don't like to prescribe, but I did have some basic things that I talked about in there about sort of finding your equilibrium and probably the most 
important concept aside from that minding the gap is kind of what I talk about. You know, like if you're, you know, you wanted to get all the way up the mountain on the Camino and you're only made it halfway and then you feel like you're a failure. It's like, no, you made it halfway up the mountain. That's huge. You know, um, it's, it's, a, it's an adjustment of, of your perspective and your attitude. But the other thing I talk about a lot in that book is one of the things we've, and I don't want to bend your ear about this forever, but no. the, it's just a really, it was a, a, something that I had to learn. That we spend a lot of time talking to our kids and at our kids and explaining things to our kids, especially our youngest kids, you know, like up to like five, six, seven. And that's not how they learn. They don't process things verbally. They imitate. So if you want your kids to put on their shoes and go outside, you know, get to school, rather than saying, you know, Christopher, you need to put on your shoes you go over and put on your shoes. Yeah. You know, everybody puts on their shoes and then you just go. And so it's focusing a little bit more on action and a little less on sort of like the remote control kind of thing, yeah, you know, yeah. where you're just doing, you know, or, you know, like when you say time to leave the playground, but then you are chatting with your friend for a little bit more. And then you're like, you know, so-and-so, how come you're not over here? You know, and it, it and it's just having your words and your actions meet yeah, you know, the, yeah. are, are the same. And then you're reinforcing what you're saying by what you're doing. So there's some really practical things in there. I mean, it's very, very practical. Cause I, I can't, I can't handle, I'm one of those people. You just, if you give me a concept, I have no idea what you're talking about, but if you do it, yeah. You know, then I can see it and I'm like, oh, um, and so that's what I, I just, I, I was one of those parents. I'd spent all this time like walking and talking with all my friends. I actually, my title for the book was walk with me because I didn't really want to be talking at people. It was more like, let's go for a walk and talk with each other, you know, shoulder to shoulder. But again, publishers have their way with titles, but that's basically what it is. It's yeah. more of an attitude of just being present in the moment, which is kind of what my old journal is about. You know, it's about being present in the moment and it just, things work out better. When yeah. We're not worried about what happened before and feeling all guilty about it. Mm. And we're not anxious about what's going to come next because then we get all spun up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And I think that's a really important point that our children learn so much more from the way we conduct ourselves and doing rather than talking. Yeah, I love that. People who have listened to this podcast for a long time will know I had a son who had addiction problems, and it was a very heartbreaking journey for all of us. In yeah. fact, I was estranged for uh, for a while from him in a period earlier uh-huh. this year, and I eventually sought some advice about how to proceed, and that someone who was giving me advice urged me to show compassion. And yeah. I was told the approach to the relationship and my son, and, and look at both with compassion. Compassion is a great skill for the parent to have in their quiver, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's really a lot of what I mean when, and you know, it's hard to, I'm not very good at summing things up, but yes. And that's what I mean about being in the present and not worrying about how far you are from where you want to be. That's compassion for your child and that's compassion for yourself. And you need both of those things, you know, because that's how you are in relation. It's always two people in a relationship Mm. and both of them need compassion. Yeah. Always, yeah, which is just kindness, as you say. You know, that's the yeah. basis for everything is kindness. Yeah, and I think it's very difficult at times to be compassionate for yourself. And and that's one of the great gifts I think you can give yourself is to just take the time to show yourself a little compassion. Mm-hmm. No one's perfect. And, you yep. know, we beat ourselves up just so much. I, I, it's just, yep. I, I, I'm not very good at it. I preach it, but yeah. I'm not very good at practicing it, I have well, to say. Yeah. The reason why it's hard is because we love our children so much, you know, and it's painful for them to see them suffer. I mean, that's, that's love. Um, and that's a good thing. You know, sometimes people come up to me and say, well, you know, I've made so many mistakes. And one of the things I do in the beginning of the book is I literally describe like a complete flame out, you know, that I have, you know, because I want people to understand I am not standing up above them looking down in judgment. I am struggling along just as they are. But what I tell people is you are an imperfect human. They're the perfect teacher for your children because you're teaching them how, how to be imperfect humans. Because if you were perfect, you would have nothing to offer. You would literally have nothing to offer. 
And it's because we struggle and because, you know, we fall short and we keep trying and we get up every day and we keep trying. That's what we're teaching our children because they will have something that they struggle with, too. And the only person that can teach somebody how to struggle is somebody who's done it before. Mm, mm. And so I think that's where the self-compassion comes in, you know, not just, ber- you know, we, we can't, we can beat ourselves up a lot. I've done it myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it just, it just, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Very hard. It is hard being a parent, but it's also mm-hmm. just the most wonderful thing. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is true. Yeah. It is. And you know, the other thing, I mean, this is, and this is where I see them, the Camino and the parenting it's curiosity. I think that's where we, we can, where the sweet spot is, you know, if you're curious about who your children are and what, what are, who are they going to become? I think that just sets you on a different, slightly different footing. Same way with the Caminos, you know, you're curious about what's going to happen today. It just sets you on a different foot. I love that. Yeah. Curiosity is such a great thing. When you talked about ducks, you know, we were up in far North Queensland, right up in the very top of, uh, of Australia. And the boys were little. Um, they're 22 and 20 now, but they were just little. I think my youngest, Riley, was about five. And we stopped at a farmhouse and they were selling, you know, they had a little roadside. Um, you could buy a pumpkin and some eggs or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I said, oh, fresh eggs. I love fresh eggs. I'll buy some eggs. And there was a sign, ducks for sale. And and he said to me, can you buy me a duck, Dad? Dad? <laughs> and I I just I just said I sort of didn't really acknowledge what he said, but I I got out uh, I got the, the eggs and I got back in the car and we drove away and and my wife and I in the front and the two boys in the back in their little you know their child seats and. I could hear crying and I turned around and, and he was crying and I said, Oh, what's the matter? And he said, I wanted you to buy me a duck. And I said, Oh no, love. No, 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 no. I couldn't buy you a duck. Where would he, where would he sit? You know, it wouldn't be water for him to, to swim in the back of the car, you know, and he was just so upset. And then later that night, you know, I was tucking him in and I said, well, you're my little duck, you know, and gave him a kiss and that. And he's still duck. I call him Duck. Oh, I don't. I. I oh, never. That's so cute. I never ever call him by his own name. I. I, I will. Oh, t- that's so I, wonderful. He's away with his friends this weekend. Up and up. He's like an hour away. I'll later today. I'll say, "Are you having a good time, Duck?" I. I, I don't call him by his name. I call him Duck. I. I've called him. Yeah. And I still say, "Little Ducky, come and have your dinner, little Ducky." Yeah. It's still, still, still today. So that's why I love ducks. Isn't it funny? Yeah. But but it's a moment that he he and I share that moment, and it's that it's yeah. our it's our thing, and I think. Being kind, I, I could have turned and said, "Don't be ridiculous," as if I'd buy you yeah. a duck, you know. But I didn't. Yeah. I, I showed yeah. a, a moment of compassion, yeah. and and it's that compassion yeah. that that steers yeah. us in the right direction. It's it's fabulous. Yeah. You know, I reckon you're a pretty good mum. You know, your website says Lee can be relied on to talk with her hands, show up when promised, shout when uh. reading the morning news. According to the husband, uh. if you shout louder, they'll hear you, <laughs> and to bring up butts or vomit during meals. According oh, to your oh son. Oh my goodness! I can't believe you said that. And your motto, it's according true. to your daughter is throw it out or melt cheese on it well that's tr- you know she told me that one time she's 31 now um and my son is 26 and she told me that about 10 years she just announced that was my motto and for a second i was like so insulted you know because <laughs> and then i realized she was absolutely true it was just she had nailed me um it was so true and so i've just embraced it you know which is i mean it's kind of like just like don't get too attached and just you know adjust yeah yeah. you know any any meal in my mind can be you know however much of a disaster it is you put some cheese on it we're good to go you know and and you know don't be too precious about it and so yeah I love it. Throw it out or melt cheese on it. What a great motto. Let's step back on the Camino, you and me, Lee. What yeah. what, what motivated you to begin with to undertake a, a, not just a long walk, but a pilgrimage? You know, I don't think I could have answered that before I went. I think I just, it, it was kind of like the Charles Simic thing with the, you know, be, be brief and tell us everything. Yeah. When my friend suggested I do the Camino, all of a sudden, it was just like this giant yes, and I didn't know why, but you know that feeling, like when something yeah. is calling to you. 
And I just felt like it was calling to me. And I think what, 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 what and I, what I think now is that what was calling to me because I walked it by myself. Um, even, and of course on the Camino Frances, there's lots of people walking. Um, I think I walked in October basically, but there's still a lot of people yeah. going and there, it was different than just like going for a hike in the mountains because when even if you're doing this alone there's like this communal purpose like every person there is doing it for you know their own particular reasons but we're all kind of doing it for we all have one goal which you know on the surface is to reach Santiago but there's always you know there's that and then there's always a subtext there's always all the reasons below it but there is something about everybody working in very individually towards a shared destination mm. or a shared goal. Mm. And I really felt that. Um, I felt like we were all carrying each other. I didn't know that's what I needed when I went. But that definitely was what I needed. That feeling of being carried and carrying other people um, with our intentions and with our, you know, our hopes and our dreams, I think I needed that. That was my, you know, I mean, I went unknowing. I went just because I felt a pull. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then, boy, did I learn some yeah. things, you know. Um, yeah, how fantastic it, it called you in a way. Do you, do you think that pilgrimage is for everyone? Probably not, just because I don't think anything is for everyone. Yeah. But I definitely am one of those people that feels like you do you. You know, there can be a million and one reasons. As many there's many reasons to do the Camino as there are people doing it. And so I very much, you know, when people ask me, well, you know, what are the things you you don't bring, you know, in your pack? The hardest thing to not bring in your pack is judgment. But I think that's the most important thing to leave at home. Yeah of other people and again of ourselves. Um, and so I tried very hard not to, you know, it, it, and again, it goes back to the kindness and compassion. I think anybody, I think anybody can do it, but I'm not sure everybody, anybody, everybody needs to do it or everybody should do it. I just think if it, if it feels right to you, do it. And if it doesn't, don't, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, Take me back to, to the Camino Frances, uh, the Via Francesina, what did you learn about yourself on pilgrimage, Lee? Well, there's some things that were really mundane, like I'm a vegetarian, and I learned that I needed, on the Frances, I learned I needed lots more protein than I actually got. So when I, I mean, this is what I mean about being really like, you know, like some really silly things. But when I did the VF Francesina, I totally planned out my trip based on grocery stores, which <sighs> turned out, to be more important than just the food because when you are what I was walking in this like alternative I don't know like this I was just so look so much looking that I would literally go into a grocery store and get my snack or you know get myself a nice cold coca-cola and I'd sit on the bench outside and I'd watch all the people coming and going and it was the most fascinating thing I ever saw you know, who would say they did a grocery tour store tour of Europe and loved it? <laughs> That's what I did. I did the grocery store tour and I would I would do it again. You know, I people were like, well, did you go see this, you know, site? And I was like, no, I was at the grocery store. That's where things were happening. I mean, I already lived sort of very simple life, but I learned how much I really like that rhythm. Um, yeah. I learned one of the things that was really profound to me on the the Camino Frances was I was really looking forward to not having to take care of my family and all the people that I take care of. I was really looking forward to, you know, just having myself to take care of, which there was some part of that I really enjoyed, but I realized how important it was to be needed, to feel oh, wow. needed. And so when I got home, I, you know, threw myself into the normal things that I might be grumbly about with gratitude yeah. You know, like wow. I am grateful that somebody is, you know, my daughter is calling me at an inconvenient time because she needs my help. I'm grateful for that now instead of irritated, you yeah, know? Yeah. And so, I and that. I just, what I'm trying to learn to carry over between my Caminos is that sense of openness and just not 
dismissing anything as being too small to be of notice, you know, to be of note or to be valuable. Because I think that was the thing that most was most different to me yeah. on those walks. Wow. And I'm trying to bring to my life now, I'm not sure how successful I'm being, but I'm working on it. Mm. Um, how fantastic. Oh my gosh, it's been such a delight to talk to you, Lee. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I can't believe the clock's looking at me and it's saying, gosh, you've almost been talking for an hour. Before we finish, I always ask my guests to tell us a Camino story, but I want you to tell us about the night before you crossed the Po. You were the only one staying in a hostel in the village of Corte Santa Andrea. Oh my goodness. Tell us that (laughs) story. Okay. (laughs) This, This is one of my absolute favorite stories ever. I had had my worst day on the via the day before I got to Corte San Andrea. That was the day where everything was wrong and the ducks were like the saving grace of the day. Mm. And then the next, I think the next day, I'm pretty sure it was the, the next day, I arrive in Corte San Andrea, which is t- a tiny town. Um, I mean, tiny. I mean, I say it had a restaurant, but it didn't even really. It was just like somebody cooking for people in a house. And, you know, it was really tiny. And I was the only one there. I was the only pilgrim in the hostel, which was quite large. And a sort of young woman had let me in, you know, and shown me around. And she, you know, told me to lock the door because I was the only one there. So to lock the door that evening. So I had my, and they they had a kitchen. And what was amazing was the the parish stocked the the refrigerator with food for pilgrims. And, you know, it was a donativo. So, you you know, you, you... you didn't, you know, you just paid what you could, but they had this refrigerator full of food. And so I had made myself this amazing dinner, you know, with pasta and they had tons of vegetables and, and beans, you know, for a vegetarian. I was like, oh, beans, you know, I could feel all that protein coursing through my body. And I just, you know, I was really happy. But then I went and lay down on my cot and it was starting to get dark and I'm feeling the emptiness of the hostel, you know, I'm feeling how alone I am in the world. And I'm like, Am I going to let myself freak myself out or not? <laughs> and then there's this boom, boom, boom on the door. I'm like, oh my goodness, what is this? So I go down and I fumble around with the key and open the door. And it's this crowd of Italians. There were seven Italians plus a priest. I mean, he was Italian too, but you know, he just stood out because he was the priest. And they all just come barreling in. And there was the auntie um and i she told me her name which of course i forgot but she was you know an elder elderly woman but just you know she was like a grandma she was like everybody's grandma and she came in and just clucked over me like a mother hen she you know we went into the kitchen and they said the reason they came by was because they had this bottle of olive oil they were dropping off in the kitchen which of course already had bottles of olive oil and i was like it doesn't take this crowd to do this (laughs) But so, of course, they're just nosy, which, you know, I'm nosy. So I was like, this is fine. But it was just hilarious. And she goes, she opened the first thing she does is open the refrigerator. She literally picks up every item in there and tells me what I should do with it. You know, and 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 she insisted that I had to eat a second dinner, um, which I did, because when she insists you do, you know, she says you do it, you do it. And we just had this hilarious and raucous conversation. I mean, I had were, I had learned some Italian so I could understand, you know, enough. And, you know, there were jokes and just and it was hilarious. And then all then they were done and they trooped out and I'm left there, you know, in this building that's big and cavernous, but not empty anymore. It's kind of like reverberating with their presence, even yeah. though it's not they're not there anymore. Yeah. And I'm just standing there with my hair on end, going, What just happened? you know and it just i i mean it literally you know like i still think what what was that i mean you know and and i mean i joke about how you know was it the seven dwarves was it you know was it a bunch of fairies or were they angels i mean it could have been any of those you know what i mean yeah because it really felt like a visitation to me you know like i felt blessed yeah in every sense of that word by those people who came to me that night i love it and uh, that i mean things like that that will carry me for the lifetime you know and that's the thing about kindness is one kindness you have no idea what that one kindness will mean to somebody else and i know i mean i remember every single one because my life wasn't always easy so i remember every single kindness and they carry me 
they matter. Um, yeah. You know, I will remember those people forever because I keep them in my heart. Oh, I love it. So, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I that love was it. amazing. Yeah, what a moment. What a moment in a little Italian village. That's a brilliant story, brilliantly told, Lee. Just like we talked about the three examples of your writing um, that we've already discussed. I loved exploring your writing and your experiences, and you've given us all tremendous insight and encouragement through the words you place on pages. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I've thoroughly enjoyed the chat. I I, I hope our paths cross again soon. And and in the meantime, I, I, I've always finished every interview by saying Buen Camino. Oh, thank you. And Buen Camino to you too. It's been such a pleasure. My guest this week was Lee Page, a writer, walker, gardener, motivational listener, professional dog spoiler, and occasional exaggerator. You can find Between the Path and the Way, a 1,000-mile journal, and Parenting in the Here and Now, Realising the Strengths You Already Have, on Amazon. And Lee's article, I Walked a Thousand Miles Alone Through Europe and Learned That Fear is the Price of Freedom, is on The Guardian's website. It's Lee Page, spelled L-E-A. And her website, leepageauthor.com. The American Christian theological ethicist H. Richard Niebuhr said, Pilgrims are persons in motion, passing through territories not their own, seeking something we might call completion, or perhaps the word clarity will do as well, a goal to which only the Spirit's compass points the way. Walk on, pilgrims. In the meantime, I'll be back again next week with another episode. Thanks again for your kindness. Read my voice. It means the world to me. Until next week, buen camino.